You are now listening to the Socks and Sandals podcast. Every time an independent, a truly independent source goes into the Portland Place Bureau, we find chaos. Just one of the people like just told to my managers who like had fired me, they were like, yeah, did you see Tevin's video was on Complex? And he was like, man, dog, they sick, man. Yada, yada. And I was just like, I was laughing because it was just like, you know, bro, like, you know, God, God always got a plan. In that moment, I thought, you know what? I don't care. I'm going to sit here in the middle of this aisle in Target and talk to her and break down what is going on and why she believes that these white Barbie dolls are more valuable or should come home with us over these brown and black Barbie dolls. The Egyptian creation story is a very sexual one. Mm -hmm. And it talks of the god creating himself through a sexual act with himself. So it's a masturbatory big bang like I never even hire coaches when I establish a program. I always hire mentors first. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Because a mentor gets the big picture. Coach might just get basketball. I want somebody that under X's and I want somebody that's about whole life. I'm not the only podcaster out there. You're not the only marketer out there. Like there's a lot of people doing the same things. But the things that's going to separate you and I from the rest of the people is that we become our best selves and we just don't quit. So what is the gospel? What is the pure, unadulterated yes, gospel? Yes, yes, and that is what I live by, because the moment this changes is the moment I'm leaving Christianity. Okay. The pure, unadulterated gospel, and I can say it in one sentence, but I'll elaborate. For sure. Is love God and do whatever the fuck you want. Welcome you all back to the Socks and Sandals podcast, where society, culture, history, and religion collide, and we unapologetically discuss our worldviews. It's your guy, Emmanuel. I'm back in the building, whipping it up, and I have a few very special guests with me today. First off, I have Kayeen Talton Davis, owner of Soapbox Theory. She's an author, and she is the head of history, art, and storytelling for Albina Vision Trust. Kayeen, say what's up to the people. Hey, hey. Sure, for sure. Thank you for being here. I appreciate you. And next up, we have Winta Johannes. She is the managing director of Albina Vision Trust. She is the former senior policy advisor to Portland City Commissioner Chloe Udaly. Winta, say what's up to the people real quick. Hey, everyone. For sure. Once again, thank you all for both being here. Um, before we dive into uh, this rich discussion that we're about to embark upon, I just want you all to tell everyone just a little bit of more, a little bit more about who you are. So Winter, I'll let you go first. Just tell us who you are, where you're from, and what's the typical day in the life of Miss Winter Johannes. Yes. Well, thank you for having me, Emmanuel. And I'm always so happy to be in a conversation with Kane, who's maybe one of my favorite people in all of Portland. <laughs> so I tell her that every single time we talk. Um, so I'm the executive director of Albina Vision and our you know, work is to reclaim and reimagine what can be for the future of the lower of lower albina. Um, I was born abroad in Eritrea um, and had a 
a quick stint in Lincoln, Nebraska is where my family first landed. I had never, uh, you know, been around white people, actually. I've never seen a white person until I landed in Lincoln, Nebraska at How age seven. Seven. I was seven years old. We'd heard about white people, <laughs> um, but never seen them, not, you know, and. Tell, hold on, tell, me, of, tell me about the, the myth of white people. Tell me about that notion that y'all had. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> you know, there, was, there were a few things. That uh, before we came to the States, the day before we left, my friends and I, you know, we were having our, our goodbye party and they warned me and gave me advice about what to expect. Um, one was that white people only ate spaghetti. <laughs> I have no, <laughs> I have no idea where, where that came from. I think it was like our understanding of, of you know, what, what Americans eat, um, because, you know, in our culture, we have our, our traditional Eritrean food, which is much like Ethiopian food. Uh, and then the only other kind of cuisine is Italian because of Italian colonization. And so in our mind, if it's not Eritrean, then it's Italian. So Americans must be like the Italians. So, so they warned me that all I'd have to eat would be spaghetti. Uh, and then the other sort of advice is that well, this isn't about white people, it's more about America, but that when it rained in the U.S., the dirt uh, doesn't become mud, it becomes Play-Doh. Wow. <laughs> and so in our, you know, seven, six, seven-year-old brains, it was like, this is magical. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, so in that, in that context, then, though, then, you know, being in Lincoln, Nebraska, which maybe couldn't be more different. Mm -hmm. um but which i still thought was the greatest place on earth at that time yeah uh you know so spent a few years there and then made our way to portland which is where i grew up but with lincoln as the background portland was actually like whoa there's so many black people here yeah. <laughs> you know, like we're not the only ones um and so yeah i grew up in portland uh went to madison high school and then reed um found my way into politics and now here Awesome. Awesome. What a journey for sure. Thank you. Kiyin, tell the folks a little bit more about who you are, where you're from, and what's a typical day in the life of Ms. Kiyin Talton Davis. Sure. Um, went to the feeling is mutual. 100%. One of my favorite people. Um, I am a Portland native of uh, Northeast Portland. So grew up here going to um, you know, graduated from Benson hey. and Tubman, uh, Portland State. Uh, I did my my stints back east, um, and so that was. I think everybody, you know, should get out of town and spend some time away Definitely. for a while, just to really be able to see what different, you know, different folks are like, um, what you can appreciate about being home and what you appreciate about being somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And um, heading back east was a really kind of, and it was an eye opener for me in many ways. Um, coming back was a bigger eye opener as well, just because, you know, you get out. I was, I went to University of Pittsburgh for a while and um, a lot of my friends ended up being from like Chicago, Atlanta, DC and Philly. That was our crew mm -hmm. and learning all of these different kind of things that were going on in these cities and what was normal to one group of black folks was 
weird to another group was even more different to another group. Just um, really kind of understanding that there are so many different black cultures within the overarching black culture that it's like, shoot, come on, we're all black, we can do this, you know, um, really eye opening. And then um, ended up coming back after having some, some issues with some classmates. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, it was really kind of one of the reasons why I switched from eventually switched from engineering into art. Um, I went into biomechanical engineering because I wanted to do prosthetics and I wanted to, you know, make it so that, or make something to where children could feel that they were important and whole. And I really wanted to focus on prosthetics for children of color. So specifically like black kids, um, just because so often things were that neutral color, that tan band-aid color mm -hmm. that didn't really work for, you know, 90% of the world. Um, so, I ended up getting into my groups there and it was a group of essentially white farm boys and it didn't work so well. Mm. Um, they'd never been around um, anybody black before. They surely were not used to having um, a black woman in their classes and in their groups and it showed. So it was one of those cases where um, they would set meetings while I was in class and then tell the professor I didn't show up. So coming from that experience is really what kind of pushed me into getting into education and being a very strong uh, youth advocate for um, women and uh, black children within the sciences and math, just because it's not so much that there are any problems understanding these concepts and so on, but so often kids aren't in even introduced to them and they're not introduced to them by somebody who looks like them and somebody who truly understands. You know, we've seen this in the pandemic where um, kids are doing one thing in school with their math, but their parents can't understand what the math is going on. Mm -hmm. And so there's this disconnect. And so really wanting to kind of dive in there and get into educating youth, educating communities and making sure that we're pushing forward and building our own futures and not really kind of relying and interacting or relying so much on somebody else to do things for us. Um, so that's really kind of where my, my perhaps biggest push has actually come from. Um, and that's, you know, that's what I do through art these days. So I did finish in mechanical engineering, but I switched over to art and uh, here I am today doing all kinds of things. Man, that's a that's a beautiful story. Um, there, there's the unfortunate part of, of course, like the discrimination, but the fact that you persevered and you got creative and you created your own lane, like that's the dopest part about your story. Now, before we get into the heavy content, y'all, we must talk about one of the most pressing issues of the day, and that is the Meghan Markle Prince Harry interview. Now. Uh, we do have an expert sitting with us that is among us right now. Winter, I, I will let you take it away. Um, you you watched more of the video than all of us. So tell me, you know, what drew you to the video and what stood out to you about that interview that they had with Oprah? 
That's funny. I don't know how I became an expert. Uh, you know, the only thing better, <laughs> the only thing better than the than the interview has been the reactions, right? Like, I just, I love, I love being able to just catch the reactions after because there is some, I mean, that interview was heavy, right? And I think, you know, every Black woman that saw the interview felt <laughs> felt it, you know, we can recognize what happened and, and why. But I just, I love that we can make light of <laughs> and still find ways to just, um, you know, to see each other even in the tough moments. But I tuned in because everybody was talking about it and because the Royals just, I mean, they're not really on my radar, right? Um, and so I was curious, and I was saying earlier, you know, we were planning to sort of drive by the interview, but as soon as she dropped, you know, the bit about the family, you know, discussing her son's skin color, we just said, wait a minute, like, what is happening? And uh, then we couldn't turn it off. But I mean, it's, it's just shocking, um, and yet not surprising, right? The the dynamic um at play, and it also, I have to admit, it made me think about Commissioner Hardesty this week mm -hmm. uh, with what's happened with the false allegation. I mean, there's this, like, direct line, right, when Black people and Black women challenge mm -hmm. the status quo or otherwise, you know, stand up to, to communicate a point of view that they become a target. So I've been, I've been sort of in my feelings about what, what happened to Commissioner Hardesty, to be honest, and, and you know, comparing it to Megan sharing her story. Mm -hmm. And for, for context, for those that are not in Portland, so you're talking about Joanne Hardesty, mm -hmm. and she was falsely accused of, what, what was the false accusation exactly? Yeah, so she's, mm -hmm. you know, the city's first Black woman commissioner, mm -hmm. a very vocal advocate for police reform. Um, and has been for for many years and you know it's come out over the last week that she was falsely accused of a hit and run mm. um and she i mean she's not even she doesn't have a car that she's driving so it was you know sort of debunked the same day but before that could happen it you know it just spread like wildfire and still has right the the potential to one damage her reputation from people who don't see the corrected version, but two, and maybe per, like even scarier than that is that it looks like someone in the police bureau, you know, leaked this this totally unsubstantiated claim against her, and before it was even investigated, it's in the press. It's you know hitting these right wing networks, and it's you know I think it's very clearly meant to intimidate. Her her and also anyone who's going to sort of stand up and challenge you know challenge power so right and so her her stance is against or is like is her stance more or less defunding the police or what is it specifically yeah you know i mean i guess i wouldn't want to speak for, for her specific policy stances mm -hmm. i think you know what i'd say broadly is that she thinks you know the police bureau needs to to go through some major changes. Um, I think the funding has been a part of that, but there, there are other elements. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the fact that she's been vocal and, and hasn't 
and willing to sort of back down has made her a threat, right? And so she's being targeted in this way that I think even if you don't agree with her on, on policy or, or in other areas, you just have to look at it and say, you know, we, we actually can't accept this as the the price of, you know, being a public official or, or just being a public, you know, facing leader that you know this kind of intimidation it's just it's like it's not okay it just makes me so sad right to just just watch it unfold the way it has with so little protection of her yeah no that's that's sick that's really sick hopefully they get down to the bottom of that and there's some true justice served um yeah so i i took this away from megan (laughs) just to say you know like black women i just i think it's been a tough it's been a tough week (laughs) Yeah. Yes. It's, it's it's something where for me, like I have my feelings and I have my opinions about the whole situation with the Meghan Markle and all that. But um, it's also one of those things where it's like, it's kind of none of my business. I don't know. I, I, I might be going too far with it, but I almost feel like as a black man, like I can't really speak on it because I don't know enough about her and her situation and I'm just not a black woman. So for me to speak on it is just kind of like, eh, you know, but I want to, I will share my <laughs> ideas, but ladies first, please. So Kiyin, I mean, I, I don't know how much you watched or how much you have indulged in that interview, but I would love to hear your thoughts. I don't know that I've seen any of the actual interview, but I have um, fully indulged in Black Twitter's take. Um, <laughs> and I think that just shows so much about how, you know, the community handles issues. You know, there's love, there's humor, there's, you know, the anger is always with this touch of something else, right? It's that community care because it's that understanding that we're all dealing with something some piece of this in some way. Um, And so there's that, that laughter that comes, that comes with it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just such a a interesting thing because you're like, yep, yep, exactly. It has almost nothing to do with the actual quote, right? But it's the summation of, of everything in like two sentences. Yeah. No, it's, for me, it was definitely like the the Twitter engagement because I didn't watch. I watched like little clips here and there, but um, I haven't went to CBS.com. I don't have Paramount Plus. I think that's the app that everybody was watching it on the day that it came out. So I didn't get to see it in, in totality, but I lived through it, you know, vicariously through Twitter. And it was just it was just hilarious. But the overarching thing that was just it, it just seems weird is like almost the the shock that there's some type of racist element coming from the royal family. And it's like, look at what their empire is built on. <laughs> like, what do you, why, why is there a surprise or why is there some shock or why is that so, you know, I, I don't know if you guys felt that way or, way or if that's, I don't know. How, how do you guys feel about that? Yeah, it makes me wonder. Um, like, I, I haven't seen a lot about what the reaction has been from from black folks in the UK, 
um, you know, I wonder if it's giving them a way to say, you know, look, racism is not an American problem here too. Um, So I don't know. Yeah, I think the shock is from other folks. Mm. I don't know that I would really say that any of the things that I've seen are actual shock mm-hmm. from Black folks. It's like, what? They're racist? <laughs> really? Right. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of everything that I've seen <laughs> in, right. a, in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah. but, you know, uh, it's it's been because of what Twitter has turned it into, you know, it's become like this kind of fun spectacle thing, but there are some serious parts to it. So definitely prayers to, to Megan um, for her mental health and just going through dealing with the backlash because at the end of the day, no matter what these people said or did, um, that's her family and that's her, that's her son's family. And they're going to have to live with, the backlash you're going to have to live with when the cameras go off and Twitter stops talking about you, they're still going to be dealing with this. So um, hopefully they deal with it well and Prince Harry continues to hold her down and and all that good stuff. So um, big prayers to her. Now, moving forward, let's get down to business. Now, one of the reasons why we're here, there's a few reasons why we're here. Um, I have known both of you in some form or fashion before we came together on a professional level. Uh, Kayeen, I've watched you from afar you know, get awarded many, many awards, um, Pitch Black PDX. Uh, well, I don't know, maybe maybe that was the only one, but that was big to me. I seen you on that stage and and doing your presentation and doing your pitch. I was like, man, she's she's tight. Like she really did that. And so, um, and then I met Cleo at that event, your husband, and mm-hmm. we struck up a friendship from there. And so uh, I think that was, was that 2019 or 2018? 18. 2018, wow, it's almost mm-hmm. three, okay. That was 2018. And then winter, we first met through um, ah, my guy, Paul. What's what's the organization? Um, Liberation Literacy. Lib Lit. Yes. Liberation Lib-lit. Literacy. So we, we met at those meetings. Tell me about like what, what was your involvement like in, in totality? Was it just someone invited you and you showed up to the meetings or uh, you were a part of the organization and kind of running or, or leading it? Yeah, well, so LibLit, you know, it was in, um, before it was an organization, it was a, a community sort of uh, effort to visit um, CRCI, which is the prison that's here in, uh, in Portland. So every week, uh, volunteers would go in um, and we would, you know, read, read together and discuss social justice and criminal justice reform um, mostly, but we touched on a lot of topics. And it was about, um, you know, about being on this educational path together, learning from one another, but really building community. Uh, You know, folks who are coming in um, from the outside and then folks that were incarcerated. So it was a really, I mean, it was a really beautiful space. and I was there for two, you know, two years or so. I was going in every Wednesday night for three hours a week. And we would have all of these just really wonderful discussions and debates. And it was, I mean, it was one of my favorite things I've done um, and, and been a, a part of. Uh, but I stepped back once it was, you know, becoming a nonprofit and sort of taking more, 
you know, is becoming more of an organization instead of, you know, a thing that we all love to do. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I've met you in one of those meetings that were happening on the outside. Yep. So that's when we first crossed paths. And then, um, and then I didn't, I mean, I, I knew that you were, you were tight, you were dope, you were a good person. I didn't know that you were like a rock star in these streets though. I didn't know you was, you know what I mean? You had these titles and stuff. I was like, oh, winter, winter's a big deal. Okay, that's what's up. And so, um, and I remember when that that press release came out uh, with you um, being awarded, not awarded, but like being, um, uh, I, what do I want to say? When you were hired, <laughs> yeah. when, when you were hired with Albina Vision Trust as the managing director, um, I was like, wow, that's, that's a big deal. Cause I had heard about Albina just like here and there from certain people that were in the nonprofit space and just what they were doing um, and how much money they were, you know, planning on spending and raising and, and just whatever, just managing. And so um, then I learned that you're going to be a part of like, wow, this is awesome. And then uh, Cleo and Kayeen reached out and, um, and I, I was able to co-host a few, a few workshops with the wonderful Sharon Gary Smith with Albina Vision Trust. So I want you all to just kind of um, expand on your roles with Al Albina Vision Trust and really what, what it's all about. Winter, I'll let you go first with that. Man, I wanted to hear some Kane. Uh, but you know, I'll say when I was hired, it did feel like uh, it was an award, right? This is like, a dream opportunity where the job that you do is the thing that you are most passionate about. Um, and so, you know, to get to what we do, it is, it's a big ambitious project that says there is going to be a significant opportunity here for black folks, all types of black folks to be able to lay claim to this part of, of the central city. So we are going to reclaim home. We're not going to keep being pushed out. And in that we will rebuild wealth. We will create an environment that is for us and, and reflects that in the buildings and the streets and the types of parks um, and will generate wealth and opportunity. And so it's been a really um, amazing year, and I have to say my favorite thing about it, you know, what we do is, is important, um, but how we do it really matters. And so we've spent the last year actually talking a lot about joy and the need to create places of joy in terms of our engagement, the way that we are creating opportunities to connect, um, you know, having you and Ms. Sharon uh, co-host is a part of that. And then ultimately, you know, what we create has to be something that we're really proud of and reflects all of this sort of optimism uh, that I think is, is inherent in just how um, we've always been. For sure. Keen, I'll let you go ahead and, and tell us like what your, um, how, how you came about, you know, with, with your role, how that blossomed into what it is and, um, you know, why you're a part of the team. Um, you know, part of what, um, part of the work that I do and with, with my husband, Cleo is, um, this art as a social practice, right? It's art that is 
not just interesting to look at, but something that you're going to learn from. And then also that is going to push you to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's educational. It has uh, history involved. It has um, just those little buttons that kind of open up doors mm-hmm. to understand why things are the way they are. So for instance, um, we have a piece on North Alberta or Northeast Alberta rather that talks about how Alberta got to be the way it was in the eighties and nineties that it wasn't um, just black folks not doing anything but that it was actually something planned by city and uh, other organizations with the city. So like, you know, PDC not giving out loans to black owned businesses with any kind of regularity. Um, street lights not being repaired, garbage not being picked up. Those, these are all city issues. It's not black folks that are just not taking care of themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, shining a light on redlining. All of these things that have gotten us to the point where a project like Albina Vision has to come in and say, wait a minute, hold up. Yeah. You know, we've been pushed around, we've been pushed out, we've been kicked out um, by so many different practices. Uh, we, we're going to want our roots back. We're going to come back and we're going to stake our claim to our land again. This area where Black Portland basically grew up, right? Um, so that's really kind of where that connection is for me. Um, and just having been working in that and then meeting our wonderful winter uh, and getting to know her better and really kind of being in, invited to to participate and um, has just been a really amazing thing and being able to you know as Winter said doing something that you believe in and that being your day job mm-hmm. for sure yeah so I what- think Kane I'm sorry. I no, think no, no. Uh, I, I think Kane and Cleo might have been my first meeting on the job. I think it was. It might have even been before I was hired. Like as soon as I found out, it was like, look, we need some really big thinkers here, <laughs> and um, and so it's you know it, it's worked out so well um, because of you know, of all of what Kane has said, but I just, um, it's amazing how when you go down, you, you know, the path of, of this work, you're creating new things, but mm-hmm. so you're also just looking at so much of the talent that's here. I mean, there's just so much talent in Black Portland <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, being able to surround yourself with that kind of, of brilliance and excellence all day, every day is, is also, you know, an important part of, of what we do. Yeah, it's it's definitely hard to come by. Um, but if you get it, you are you are fortunate for sure. Now, what would you all say is like the overarching goal of Albina Vision Trust? Because, you know, to be honest, before um, Cleo told me about it or even even when you got hired and people were telling me about it, I I still didn't understand it. I just heard, oh, they bought to buy up you know, lower albina, they about to build a whole bunch of stuff for black people. I'm like, okay. But like, and, and all of that sounded great, but I'm like, all right, but what, what are, like, who are they? How did they come to be? 
and what is their actual goal and when do they plan to accomplish it? So I know that's a lot of questions, but how would you guys kind of sum that up? Yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of questions. So maybe I'll start with how it came to be, and then yeah. uh, let me know if I don't cover all of it. But okay. you know, uh, the work. So the work started, you know, five five or six years ago, and it was originally actually a committee that was convened by the Trailblazers and Mayor Hales. And what happened at the time was they brought together, you know, twenty or so folks who have different um, backgrounds and said, look, there have been multiple attempts to develop this part of, of the city. For one reason or another, they haven't succeeded. Uh, and we'd like for you to think that through. We're going to take a step back and, and let the process unfold. What happened is that, you know, some of those members, uh, including Rakaia, who is, I think, a fourth generation Oregonian, um, Rakaia Adams, Mike Alexander, who uh, moved here from uh, the East Coast, but there are a few people who raised their hands and said, look, the reason that you can't think about the future is because you're not acknowledging that this actually was a thriving neighborhood already. And so any attempt to, you know, treat the current condition as what it's always been will fail. Um, and so the ability to imagine a different future actually will require you to confront that this is a successful, you know, mixed-use neighborhood with businesses and cultural centers and, you know, homes, um, and that the reason it is no longer is because of racist public policy actions, because of discrimination by the banks. And so the understanding of the history is actually a really important part of how we move forward. And we know that something will happen in this part of the city um, but we can't let it be like every other development project. So this can't be another Pearl District that's created here. Mm -hmm. uh, there's an opportunity by really understanding the past and the lessons uh, from that to creating something that honors the neighborhood's roots and, and creates opportunity for Black folks specifically. And so, you know, there from that um process came sort of core values that were driving the work um, and there were a number of, of presentations right over the years to get people to think about how do we really wrap our arms around this opportunity and make Albina a beacon you know the the, the issues that have destroyed the neighborhood are true all over the U.S. you look at where freeways um, are constructed and it's through black neighborhoods. You look at what urban renewal has done. So all of these things are actually national. So can we take our pride that we have in Portland for urban planning? Can we take the black excellence that we know is here? Can we take this moment to create something different? So that's been the motivation. Um, and we've always said, you know, all of the answers are not going to be apparent because if this had been done already, it would be really easy. Um, and so it's about saying we're not backing down on the values and the path forward, we're going to have to figure it out together. And so that's what this planning process that Kane and Cleo um, are a part of has been about is to say, okay, we've established that something different will happen in Lower Albina, that, that this will be a place of um, that embodies these values. Now let's spend this year talking with community bringing in local and national experts, uh, engaging with arts 
and entrepreneurs to figure out exactly how we will accomplish that. Mm-hmm. So I hope I answered all the, the parts of your question there. No, that was that was good, Keen. I'll let you build on that if you if you feel inclined to do so. Um, I think Quinta did a great job of really kind of summarizing like kind of where we are and why the big why, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it kind of just boils down to you know looking at creating a community where there is. Um, Black generational wealth that generates Black generational wealth, yeah. right? So that, um, and I think one way, somebody asked me a similar question and the way I broke it down is so that when you have a family that has, a Black family that has generational wealth and that is able to purchase something and then sell it in the future, that you're also preparing other families in a community that that family can sell it to, right? So that you're creating this whole community that is, um, you know, growing together, that it's not just one or two people that are benefiting, um, but the entire community as a whole. Mm-hmm. No doubt. Now, I'm just going to play uh, Donald Trump's advocate really quickly, i.e. the devil's advocate. So, you know, this is not, I don't think this is the first time that there has been some type of organization that has said that they were going to do X, Y, and Z to be able to bring black folks back to North and Northeast Port, specifically Northeast Portland, um, you know, those that have been pushed out. And there's been many initiatives, many meetings, many organizations that have said they were gonna do it and they didn't do it. So what separates Albina Vision from these other organizations? And not to denigrate any other organization, anybody else's effort, but what is different about this organization and why, why do you believe that Albina Vision is going to be able to do the job maybe um, a little bit better or just build upon what other organizations weren't able to do? Yeah, well, you know, I will say that even in the efforts that have not succeeded, there are always lessons there. Mm-hmm. And so I like to think of Albina Vision as an entity that's building on the legacy of what has not worked, but also on the legacy of what has worked, right? We have seen success in different ways. Um, what's different here is I think the is a part of it, right? So we're we're not playing sort of small ball here. We're saying 94 acres in the central city. And we are going to have a vision and a goal that's big enough that it will actually mobilize a lot of support, right? Um, I think there are probably a few other factors um, that that have contributed to our success. The other is that, you know, everyone recognizes that Lower Albina, the part that we're focused on, is really largely unusable space. Uh, it's a lot of parking lots. You can't access the river. You know, outside of uh, Blazer Games, there's really nothing that's happening there. So it's an area that is prime for development. Um, for a lot of reasons, we know that that is prime real estate that will be developed. The question is who gets to develop it and who does it benefit? And so we've raised our hands, Albina Vision, the organization, but really in collaboration with a lot of community um, organizations and community leaders to say, 
this is our, you know, <laughs> this is ours. We're not going to sit back and we might, you know, there, there, there's a lot that we'll have to figure out as we, you know, move forward, but what's the alternative? You know, are we going to look at this and say, you know, folks have tried and so we're not going to this time. And for us, the answer was no, we're going to go for it. And we're going to make sure that we, you know, mobilize the kind of support that it needs. So I'm encouraged by the amount of both community and political support that's um, come together around the vision. I think the next uh, question for us is to figure out how to make sure that we have the capital uh, to be able to, you know, to deliver on um, on the community vision that's emerging and this investment plan will help to identify, you know, what needs to be done and how. But there have been um, significant moves, I think, in the last few years that I hope people will look to and say, oh, they're serious. <laughs> and this is this is happening. Uh, and, and where there is skepticism, you know, I also I accept that because that skepticism is, is coming from a place of hurt, right? People have, have had their hopes up and then have, you know, had to be disappointed. So I understand if someone says, yeah, I don't know if you're going to be able to do this, but I'll sit back and watch. You know, what I hope is that we'll be able to get to a point where we say, "All right, come on, like it's, it's happening now. Are you ready?" Right. Um, and so we just we keep we keep building and and we keep moving forward. And this sun is like so <laughs> intense now. <I> can't. <laughs> it's coming through. See, yeah. one out there. Um. As you were talking, it made me think about um, Portland being the whitest city in America, and Albina Vision is is attempting to create a black space in the whitest city in America. Kayeen, how how does that happen? How do how do we create a space that is in, that is designed for black people in the whitest city in America, um, and how do we keep it? for us and not l allow it to be infiltrated or is infiltration okay like what don't do do you kind of see it potentially going in the direction of we establish it and then it just kind of slowly we we lose grip of it you know do you think do you see that potentially happening first i would say let's look at the language of that Mm. Because there's been Black Portland. There's been Black Portland for over 100 years. Mm. So creating a space for Black folks in Portland is absolutely nothing. It's not a new idea. It's not a new thought. It's not a new process. It is a different, what that looks like and what that might look like physically is definitely um, something that is newer. Mm. But Black Portland has operated on its own for over a hundred years. You know, when we're talking about um, Albina as a black community, it's been a, over a hundred years just in Albina alone that it was becoming a black community mm -hmm. uh, where people were moving in, where churches were established, where, um, you know, Masonic lodges and the Elks clubs were getting, you know, starting to go in and YWCA. I mean, all of this rich history we have here in Portland has been here mm -hmm. and it's still here. 
So when we're talking about creating a, a Black Portland or creating a space for Black Portland, we're talking about recreating. We're talking about re-envisioning what that looks like for current times, for modern times, for the future. Um, and so it's looking at what is so much of what is a community, community social space and how that becomes reflected in a physical space. That's really kind of, kind of where we're at. So, um, you know, just looking at many of the people that I know, you know, whenever, whenever we talk about Black Portland and growing up Black in Portland, folks were like, the only time I saw white folks were at school maybe, right? Mm-hmm. Or maybe there were a couple that lived on the block. And so getting back to that experience um, or really kind of creating an experience like that for, for future generations, I think is uh, empowering Mm -hmm. uh, in a way that you're now seeing instead of, I won't necessarily say instead of, but having a concentration of black folks doing everything, right? Where it's a walking community, uh, meaning that you can walk to the store, you can walk to school, you can walk to your friend's house, you can walk to your family's house, you can walk wherever you want to go. That's a different kind of experience for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a different kind of experience for people whose roots are on, um, you know, in North, inner North, Northeast, that are now out in East County, but are still coming back to go to school in the area or still coming back to the side to go visit their grandparents. And so it's looking at how do we, um, how do we support growing that physical black community here mm-hmm. in, in Albina and in inner North, Northeast Portland. And so I think looking at that, um, there are many, many tools that are available. And I think that's one thing that Albina Vision is doing is looking at many of those tools Mm-hmm. and how to not only utilize them, but utilize them in creative ways and creative manners mm-hmm. um, that work the way that if they were not intended to, the way they should, mm-hmm. right? There are so many, I mean, it's ridiculous how many policies are out there and how many people say, well, we can't change that. Well, who can? or who, who made that policy? Well, me and two other people will change the policy, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> if you have three people on a committee and you're one of them, I think you can talk to the other two people and see if something can change. Right. Sometimes it's as easy as that. Sometimes it's not, but having those conversations and um, the kind of pushing for it is you know, one of the biggest ways to make these, these things happen. Mm-hmm. And I guess also the the spirit of, of my question is, uh, of course, looking back at, at the past and when we think about the black community in Portland, um, it was a black community, not necessarily because we ch- because we designed it mm-hmm. the way that it was that we wanted it to be. But we were herded into an area <laughs> and redlined into an area mm-hmm. and we were forced to make that area that was kind of not really given everything that it could have been given from the, from the government. And we just turned it 
you know, we always make um, sugar out of shit for lack of a better term. So, but when we want, but as far as us creating something for ourselves, right? And us taking the initiative, you know, who's to say that they want all lives matter? Albina, once again, you know, it's like black lives matter. No, all lives matter. No, you know, all, all black men. Like the people is typically the, the pattern is black people have a certain agenda, a certain movement, and this is what it is. And other people kind of agree, but then they put their twist on it and there's more of them than us. Yeah. So we've actually how does, been how does Albina safeguard against that those outside people, the so-called allies that come in, but then push their own agenda? Right. So it's really interesting. We've been having this conversation around um, some classes that we've taught and just some observations that not only we've had, but um, others have had where you go to design something for the black community. And all of a sudden people are talking about, well, what about this? What about that? How about, well, we want the, you know, all community. No, we're specifically doing something for the black community. And it's really just kind of looking at, and I was like, you know what? Part of that is when we look at how um, black culture is, made not it's not made for consumption but people consume black culture Mm -hmm. and so when people consume black culture they're not really looking at black people as a group of people they're looking at something else to get into Mm -hmm. so often Mm -hmm. and i think as we address some of that and address um, really why this needs to happen um, and show how, um, what, what the benefits are for this community, for the, well, for the black community and for um, children mm-hmm. who, are, who are needing to experience some of these things that we're trying to build. Um, and just what the damage that has been done when this kind of thing doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we you know, approach that? How do we have these conversations is one of you know, it's a question, it's a thought, um, but then it's also how do we, you know, create this kind of governance system to where, thing, again, back to that Black generational wealth, not amongst just one or two, but as a, as a built community. Mm. Yeah, when you, uh, when you brought up the, the widest major city, I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. Let's but, go. No. <laughs> but you know, I think the other the other part of it is is ownership. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's that's how we control mm-hmm. uh, and make sure to protect the integrity of of what it is we're creating. And so there's been a lot of intention and planning that's gone to make sure that we have ownership of even the visioning process. Right. Um, it's why. Albina Vision became a, a nonprofit organization so that we would be the ones stewarding this instead of mm-hmm. waiting for, you know, government um, entities or other actors to, to invite us to think about what to do. We're actually, we're, you know, we've created the nonprofit. We're going to create the, the planning in partnership, um, but we have ownership of, of the vision in that way. And so on the other end of it, when we're talking about what's created in the neighborhood, uh, that will be important too. And and we've 
you know, taken um, some important steps towards that in this year, towards becoming property owners in the district. But um, yeah, we'll, we'll need to keep keep moving <laughs> in that direction. For sure. Let's let's talk about some of those wins. Um, I did see an article that um, referred to uh, an affordable housing project. Um, what is it? Affordable housing and theater project that's that's going on. Was that a purchase or acquisition? What happened with that? Yeah, this light is so intense. <laughs> um, but the project that uh, that you reference, it's our first development project, and so what's being uh, what we put together uh, with in partnership with Colas um, Construction, Lover Architects, and Edlin and Co. Uh, is a, an apartment building, so 120 or so units of affordable housing. Um, and with that, that Albina Vision will own. And so we can think about how we use any sort of um, revenue that comes from that to, again, put it into a into initiatives that promote and support black wealth building. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this is, you know, one way of uh, one way that ownership allows you to, um, to influence those kinds of outcomes. But I'm just as excited about the theater <laughs> as I am the housing, uh, because it's our way to start reintroducing the district as a place for uh, artists and for, you know, for um, cultural events and to reconnect it with the creative spirit that, um, that is an important part of the neighborhood. And so it will, you know, create an opportunity for us to have a gathering place in the district um, that is ours and to start programming it in ways that start to, um, to activate the district. For sure. Now there was there was a tweet that I that came across my screen. It was January 6, twenty twenty one, and it was from um, the legendary Max Smith of Portland. Y'all may know that name, um, uh, rapper, promoter, and then uh, an activist for sure. So in his tweet, he said, he said, "How many of you? How many of you all seen?" Uh, numerous Portlanders that objected the city council approving the reblighting of historic Albina this morning. It passed, by the way, time to rethink our tactics. Do you all know what he's referring to? And please enlighten me because I didn't know what he was talking about. I sent that to Cleo. I was like, bro, do you know what this is? And he said, yeah, but we didn't, we didn't eventually have a conversation, but do you all know what he's referring to? The reblighting of Albina in, in some measure being passed by the city. I have a guess, mm -hmm. but I'm going to run a quick web search to confirm it first. Because <laughs> I just want to check yeah, the date. Stay away from Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> I know Twitter is not the most reliable news, but uh, I, I'm not going to lie. I use Twitter more than I watch the actual news. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, in January, I wonder, was it January this year? Yep. January 6th, to be exact. I wonder if it had to do with the the Hill Block project, the Williams and Russell project, but I don't 
Not sure. I don't know without seeing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's there's that um, that came to mind as far as like what is if there's any government pushback on, you know, you all's initiative. And also I did see a, another win. I believe it was a win. Um, the, the headline <laughs> just had me like, wow, they really did this. So the headline was um, it was from Willamette Week. It says black neighborhood advocates just blocked a freeway project. Uh, I don't know how much you all, you all can speak on that and how much detail you can go in on that if you know what I'm talking about. I definitely know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, so, you know, maybe to the first part of your question about whether there's government opposition, uh, the you know, to the albino vision work, um, the answer is no. You know, in fact, um, the city and metro are, are partners in, in the planning work that we're doing. It is a departure for them in that, um, you know, it's it's the community organization that's leading the process and, and as opposed to, you know, being invited to the um, engagement process that they set out. Um, and so there's not opposition. There will be, um, you know, the, there will be more uh, asks that we make in terms of policy um, and other changes, right, to facilitate the creation of, of lower albina. So, you know, I hope that that their position is not just that they won't oppose, but they'll actively support the solutions that that we put forward. Um, but the Willamette Week article that you're referencing was from last summer. Um, we've been in a little bit of a, a tussle with ODOT around their plans um, to do to do a project on on the freeway. Um, Long story short, <laughs> we have uh, we've been very clear for many years now to say, look, ODOT, your the original construction of this freeway actually segregated the neighborhood. So if you look at Lower Albina, it is pinched off from the rest of, of North Northeast Portland because of the freeway. And in the construction of that freeway there was at least $500 million worth of real estate that was stolen from the black community mm. to allow for that to take place. And so if in the year 2020, 2021, you're talking about putting significant public investments towards improving this freeway, then a part of those investments need to account for the the harm that was caused. So we need you to reconnect the part of the city that has been segregated through highway covers so that, um, you know, as development takes place in, in lower Albina, it's reconnected to the rest of, of the street, to the rest of the city. So that's been one, physically reconnect the neighborhood and then two, in reconnecting it, there need to be significant opportunities for black folks to, um, to have wealth creation opportunities. So long after this project is done, we actually need this to be in, in service of a broader vision that is about um, rebuilding wealth for black folks. So that's been our position. Um, you know, ODOT, I think has struggled 
to see their role as anything more than, you know, building the freeway. At least that's what was true in the past. And that's sort of what, what the fight was about. Um, you know, and now as, you know, they do this study on, on the highway covers and continue moving forward, uh, we, you know, we'll watch what happens. And ultimately, we will be happy if at the end of the day, this project does those two things. Will you reconnect the neighborhood in a meaningful way? And will you create significant opportunities for Black folks to generate wealth in the long term outside of, um, you know, this particular project? For sure. That's dope. Kayeen, were you able to, to dig up anything? Yes. Okay. So as I thought it was what um, when Twitter was referring to for, on January 6th is when the Portland City Council mm -hmm. approved the urban renewal um, increase by $67 million. So that is very specifically around um, the Interstate Corridor Urban Renewal Project, okay. um, which does, I think, I believe that was specifically around the Hill Block lot. Um, and in direct opposition from organization um, EDPA2, uh, which is um, kind of stemmed out from Emmanuel Hospital's breach into the community as well and pushing against that. So it's, it's pushing against that or? EDPA2 was pushing against it, um, okay. but the city council pushed it anyway. Okay. Good to know. Thank you for that that clarification. Because it, it went wild on Twitter. I was like, oh, shoot, what's going on in Portland? What's happening in my city? <laughs> what's happening to Albina? You know, um, but that's good. good to get that clarification. Now, as we wrap up this part of the discussion, um, in the next, in 2025, 2030, what should we expect to see? What, what should we hope to see Albina Vision accomplish in Portland? Amazing things. <laughs> um, I think, uh, you know, Winter mentioned it is just really kind of getting back into that joy and that hopefulness and that um, thought of this new creation um, and pulling the ideas and thoughts and um, from the community and really kind of pushing forward towards this vision. And having you know a vision that is very much community centered, very much black community centered, and black community informed. Um, yeah, no doubt. Winter. Yeah, by twenty thirty, I would like to see Portlanders on the east side able to access the river to mm -hmm. see that connection restored. I'd like to see children and especially black children playing in Lower Albina um, where those, you know, parking lots and, and sort of, you know, dysfunctional structures exist. I'd like to see play uh, right mm -hmm. there. Um, I want to see thriving black businesses, home ownership opportunities. I mean, all of the things that, that we've discussed um, and maybe wrapping all of it in I, I you know hope is is a currency that you can't take lightly and so I want everyone who um, is building faith in in the process and 
and our collective ability to make something different happen in Lower Albina. I want them to be proud <laughs> and to be in Albina with the artists and the, you know, the business folks and, and you know, the people um, enjoying a restored part of, of the city and, and a restored, you know, it's as important for Black Portland as it is for Portland overall, right? You know, I think that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of shame associated with the destruction that's happened, and I hope that you know ten years from now we'll be looking at this with pride that we are able collectively to align the political leadership, the financial um, needs, and and the community support to really see this happen. For sure, no doubt. I mean, as as bright as the sun is shining on winter's face, so is so is the <laughs> the prospects of what Albina Vision is going to accomplish. I must say, I must say, I, I, I believe, I believe. That was smooth. That was smooth. <laughs> <laughs> I'm over here like I'm sitting back for you. I'm like, damn. I, I hope she gets she got some shades or something. Man, put, put the blinds down. I know. I I kind of love it though. I'm like I needed this. <laughs> no, nah, that, that that vitamin D is necessary. There's no doubt about that. It is so good. <laughs> but let's uh, let's wrap this up so we can all get outside and, and enjoy the rest of this sunny weather because we know it's not going to stay for long. So um, I'm going to go through the Fab Five five questions that I ask everyone on the show. That's whoever's been whoever's um, if it's your first time. So I'll go with Kayeen first. So when you were a kid. What did you want to be when you grew up? I went from wanting to be a nurse to a fashion designer to a prosthetics designer. <laughs> Probably a teacher at some point, but yeah. Where Those were the big ones. What did you want to be when you were a kid? What did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be in charge. <laughs> yeah, that was... <laughs> Good answer. Good answer. Yeah. <laughs> you wanted to be a boss from day one. You was boss, I baby. Wanted, I, you know, and I come from a large family, right? There's six of us in, in the siblings. So, um, you know, I, I like, and they'll tease, you know, me about this too, that I'm definitely the bossy sister in the family. But yeah, I wanted to be, to be in charge. <laughs> Let me guess, you're the youngest. No? Where, no. No. You'll never guess. You are uh, the I'm, fourth child. Okay, right? I, I stand corrected. Yes, I'm number four. <laughs> what a guess. But, you know, <laughs> it, <laughs> I know. And this is so, you know, I'll tell you a little bit. So my family, there are three of us, and then there's a 10-year gap, and then three more kids, right? And so I'm number four. So I was almost like the baby because I came after this long gap and I was the big sis mm -hmm. for the, you know, the younger three. So that probably contributed, you yeah. know, to, to some of that too. You didn't get your day in the sun as the youngest. <laughs> um, question number two, Kayeen, when you feel overwhelmed, how do you de-stress? Biggie. <laughs> throwing some biggie uh, uh, yeah which one you throwing on ready to ready to die after death life after death what you throwing on or um pretty much good a good mix we just start there and then we yeah. just go yeah loud yeah so that's that's unique that's the first time i've heard someone say <laughs> <laughs> throwing on some biggie. 
That's that's dope though. I like it. I like it. Yeah. Winter, when you feel overwhelmed, how do you de-stress? Um, you know, I oof, it's a good question. I had so probably, you know, my so my fiance is maybe the most mellow and steady person I've ever met in my life. Um it's just funny because I think people, you know, think I'm pretty mellow, but it, between the two of us, he's definitely the stable, solid, just loving person. So he's probably who I turn to when I'm feeling really overwhelmed. Um, so a good, a good talk is always mm-hmm. enough to get me back. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Question number three. Um, Kayeen, if you could choose any one celebrity as your life coach, who would it be and why? Probably Erica Badu. Mm, tell me why. Um, I just kind of like how she's into a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. And then, but it's still continuing to grow. Mm. You know, it's just, you know, from just my perspective, it's just, you know, so much of what she does is about growth and and recognition of what's going on, you know, internally and, and perhaps in the world to a point. But like, I think it's amazing that she's done all this and now she's a doula or midwife, I believe. Mm-hmm. So I think that's just absolutely awesome. Um, just to, again, that creation energy um, yeah. that new that new and that newness that there constantly is yeah Badu is amazing she's she's also um on the other side of the coin as as a man she's also kind of scary because <laughs> every brother that she be involved with they stop rapping they start dressing different like whatever they was doing they start like dang what what is she doing to these brothers man well, but, but but other well, than that other than that but do it Erica <laughs> But I'll be I'll be praying for Cleo. But uh, Winter, <laughs> Winter, yeah. If, if you could choose any one celebrity as your life coach, who would it be and why? Michelle Obama. Mm. Um, yeah, you know, like because it's Michelle Obama. Uh, but <laughs> you know, I think, um, and I already. I think her magic is that so many of us, when she's talking, already feel like she's our life coach, right? Like anytime she talks, mm-hmm. it's like she is speaking right, you know, directly to me. Um, and it's her clarity about who she is and clarity of purpose and just the grace that she's shown us for all of these years. Um, yeah. For sure. That's that's actually a pretty common answer. Michelle Obama is very, very highly respected in these streets, for sure. Um, Question number four. Kayeen, if you woke up tomorrow and found out that you won the lottery for one hundred million dollars, how would you spend your money and your time from that day forward? How much? One hundred million. If I woke up and found out that I won a hundred million dollars, I would go right on back to sleep because <laughs> I could. <laughs> oh, 
Oh, shoot. <laughs> right on back to sleep. And then I get up and think about it. Right. Um, Can you, you know, if I could, if I could. Phone? <laughs> yeah. I don't need to hear anybody calling me nothing. Let me, let me get some good sleep. Right. And then we can, we can process the rest of it. But after that, probably, you know, definitely like to see some, um, you know, definitely do some community investment, make sure that, you know, my girls are, are situated, not only them, but their, you know, their future children and so on. And just really change some things that I feel need to be changed. I'd invest in the Albina Vision Project too. Hey. <laughs> of course, naturally. Of course, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Of, it's, it's, yeah. Of, of course. <laughs> right. There would be uh, investment in in lower albina. Um, I think I'd also start a production company. I've always been interested in in film, um, and it's one of those you know hobbies and interests that you know takes takes a backseat but if I had a hundred million dollars I'd think about how to to do that more seriously mm. what type of what type of films are you creating like uh documentaries or what type of stories are you trying to tell yeah documentary but I would love to be able to 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 make it really accessible for lots of people to be able to to be a part of that process and to tell their own um, to tell their own stories mm-hmm. um, and to, you know, to put myself really in, in that work of, of creating those opportunities and being a part of that. No doubt. Awesome. All right. And the last question, it's kind of heavy. Um, take your time if you need to. So, Kiyin, what message do you want communicated at your eulogy? I would want, if somebody were summing up my life, I would want it to be as simple as she cultivated joy. Mm. I mean, they can expand beyond that, but I think that would be um, my main thing uh, that I, uh, you know, that I invested in others, that I sowed. Um, seeds of, of joy and of uh, self-esteem isn't quite the right word, but I'll take it. Um, really kind of pe- hoping, especially youth, to know their self-worth, self-worth so that they can get out there and do the hugely amazing things that they were born to do. Yeah. That's real. That's awesome. Went to. Yeah, heavy um but you know i think similar um i would want and hope that my eulogy people would say she loved us really deeply and and without fear you know i um i'm the person who will send the the you know, emotional message, right? Telling my friends and even coworkers that I love them, <laughs> um, telling community members that I love them and expressing that love, you know, in a personal way. And also um, I hope through through the work that I do. So I hope that's the, 
the final uh, reflection that people have is that I, I love them and, and that they loved me. That's awesome. Love and joy. I'm feeling it. I can feel it. Well, once again, I appreciate the both of you taking out time to speak with me today, um, to, to share the message, spread the gospel of what Albina Vision Trust is doing here in Portland. Um, it was an honor to be able to serve alongside you all in those workshops and to carry those conversations and just engage with the community members, um, those within the community and on, on the outside of the community. Um, just, it was, it was really good. And just thank you for what you shared. I think um, as this message continues to get spread, you know, people will be able to catch the vision um, and just, I, I just want this thing to be contagious and that we all hop on and uh, as Black Portland, we all support uh, and we all engage in the work that you all are doing. So thank you all once again. Thank you. Yep, no thank doubt. you. It's an no honor doubt. to be here. For sure. All right. Now, if anyone wants to uh, reach out to you all after the pod um, and wants to interact, are there any uh, emails or socials that they can reach you guys at? Um, I'm on everything as Soapbox Theory, or you can email me. You can hit up my website, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Soapbox Theory. Um, and then you can email me directly to yin at soapboxtheory.com. For sure. I am a grandma, so I'm only on Facebook. <laughs> it's like resisted Twitter. Um, so, you know, but you're welcome to find me there. You can find me on the Albina Vision website and email is winter at albinavision.org. Winter, you're doing it the right way. Less is more. <laughs> the more the more socials you sign up for, the the busier you get. And but it's like fake busy, so it's just it sucks up your time. It's addicting. It's tough. So you're you're doing it the right way. <laughs> I'm on TikTok though, so I don't know. You know. <laughs> whoa, whoa, that's a big jump from Facebook that's to TikTok. A... I just I skipped over the Twitter phase. You know? Yeah constantly sharing your opinions i wasn't i wasn't feeling it yeah but you you're gonna do all the dance challenges though you're gonna make sure you get in on that huh <laughs> yes it's a secret account <laughs> <laughs> but i say you didn't you didn't get that account out you just right that was a 2020 you know covid covid account where <laughs> had nothing else to do <laughs> No doubt. Well, thank you all once again for listening. Hope you all enjoyed your time with us. Once again, this is the Socks and Sandals podcast where society, culture, history, and religion collide. And we unapologetically discuss our worldviews. Holla at y'all next time. Grace and peace. <laughs> <laughs>